I've been reading a bit in the book of Proverbs lately, um, and when you read through that, which you see uh, quite a bit throughout woven in there, especially in those uh, that mid-section there of, of the book, is, is a father's exhortation to his child to adhere to, to pursue the, the ways of, of wisdom. Also the warning, the warning of the ruin that can come in the path, the ways of folly and foolishness, and all of that graphically portrayed in these two paths, these, these two ways that, that are set before um, this young charge. Uh, chapter 7, in particular, of Proverbs paints this picture, tells this story of this naive young man making his way through a town, and he sadly, tragically, hears and heeds the seductive words of the temptress who pulls him in pulls him in, and he realizes all too late, all too tragically, that that path was a trap meant for his destruction. But you know, Proverbs 7, and really all of the Proverbs in, in the, the father's uh, exhortation to his child goes far more broadly than, than just the, uh, the temptations towards lust, certainly part of that, but it goes far beyond that. I mean, just think in terms of all of our impulses and all of our desires, of which we need to be aware and, and, and reckon with and wrestle with, do I need to be beholden to them? Do I, should I, I, I be enslaved in obeying them and heeding that, that pull? Or you just think in terms of the, the classic seven deadly sins, right? Uh, I had to write it down because I couldn't remember them. Pride and envy and anger and sloth and greed and uh, gluttony and lust. Are our lives meant to be dominated by those impulses, by those desires? Should we live enslaved to them? I think just the, you know, honestly, just the briefest, just the shortest, just the simplest bit of reflection would be no. No, that's the path surely to ruin. So what do we make of those desires? What do we make of those impulses? If I can just put it another way, what do we do with temptation? And how do we handle it? How do we handle it? We're moving on in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are now in chapter 4. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. This is the first of the four Gospels that we have. It's the first book in the New Testament, if you're trying to find it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we're in Matthew. Matthew Four of these last several weeks, we've been looking at these first three chapters. Uh, we looked at the end of chapter three last week. We're now looking at the beginning of chapter four today. Matthew chapter four, verses one through eleven. Hear now the word of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray together. I'm borrowing some words just that you know in this prayer from Psalm 19. Lord, you have said that your law is perfect and it revives the soul. We pray for souls reviving. You said that your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. We pray for wisdom. You said that your precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. We pray for joy. You said that the command, your commandments are pure and bring light to the eyes, and we pray for that very thing. That very, very thing. Lord, we thank you for the treasure that is your word, that are the scriptures, Old and New Testament. We thank you for this text. We thank you for the Gospel of Matthew. We thank you for this particular passage and the, the wonder, the wonder of, of what is recorded here. And, and we ask that you would help us understand, and, and not just a, in an intellectual sort of way, but in a real heart's engagement, something that would uh, cause our eyes to be enlarged, to see the greatness of the days that you have placed us in, and the stakes, and even more the greatness of our Savior, the greatness of our, of our need, and how great is your love for even us this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, uh, tests, tales, temptations. Tales of temptation are actually tales of testing. Tales of testing and temptation. There are certain common ingredients, whether we're looking at historical accounts or fictional stories. Uh, common ingredients, the actors, of course, you have what? The, the, the tempter and the tempted. You have certain common ingredients as well. You have the stages of manipulation and then also allurement and pull and then some kind of outcome, whether that be overcoming or succumbing. Common areas in these tales, uh, oftentimes a blinding desire for things that in another other context would otherwise be good. Overwhelming, blinding desire for, for sex or money or power. And it's why we find in the Scriptures these accounts of such individuals as, as, as David and Samson or Achan and Ahab or Saul and Absalom. And all of those accounts rooted in, in, in the foundational one, the, the first account, the first tale, the first telling, the first story, the first encounter of temptation and testing there in the garden, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. And, and all of that, though it's rooted there, all and then coming out of that, all of that coming to fulfillment, coming to be realized, coming to be, to be met in this account, and in Mark's and in Luke's account of Jesus' meeting of a test and temptation in a wilderness that looked like that. There's a lot here. I will, I will tell you that there's, there's probably too much to try and 
cover in, in the next few minutes. I'll just be honest with you there. I will just say this, that, that I think the basic point that could be made, the basic thing, the basic theme uh, where I'm trying to, to head and take us in the next few minutes is, is something along these lines. Jesus, we see him withstanding all temptation and therefore showing himself to be truly the Son of God. Jesus withstands all temptation and therein shows himself to truly be the Son of God. As a consequence of that, we can and must then be looking to him in our own temptation. Now, I know normally those of you who've heard me preach, teach a time or two, you're, you're accustomed to a certain kind of outline. And I'm not going to use that kind of outline today. Just I couldn't figure out a way to make it work um, in, in, in this particular text. And so instead of trying to integrate applications as we're moving through the points, I'm really looking more at waiting, like when wait, waiting those applications towards the end. Uh, really try and get a, a handle on what's going on here and then looking at the implications and significance of all that towards the end. And I'll put it another way. I've got three questions in mind, and that's really what's forming your outline there, your three points of the outline. The, the questions go like this. What is temptation? What are we talking about? What is it? What is its nature? What is it? Uh, the, the second one being, what are we, what, what's going on here with Jesus' temptation? What, what is that about? Why is it significant? And then the third question being, what do we learn? What do we need to hear? What do we need to understand? What do we need to take away from all of that? So the first thing being the nature of temptation. What exactly is it? Just think in terms of, of definitions. Let's, let's talk about what it's not. Um, it's not what typically, how we, how we hear that word, how we think about that concept in, in, in modern times, which may tell us something about our obsessions. It's not chiefly about sex. Uh, it can include that. It can include seduction, but it can go. It can go. It really needs to be understood as big, a bit broader than than that. Really, in a biblical sense, temptation needs to be understood as a sense of testing. In fact, that's how the word can be translated, and oftentimes needs to be translated. Uh, that you see here in this this passage when you look at just verse one. Um, so that said, depending on who's the subject, who's doing the tempting. The aim, the goal, can be to entrap. It can be to damage faith. It can be to uh, exasperate. It can be to provoke rebellion against God. And that's certainly Satan's aim here in, in, in that. But in another way, depending on who the source is, depending on who's the, the, the doing it behind it, it can be to expose what's there. It can be to refine. It can be to strengthen. It can be with the purpose to prepare for something. It really, in a sense, has a neutral connotation. It just depends on the setting and the context. It, uh, to prove what's there, to, to measure what's there, just as a, as a metal worker would be trying to, to test and prove how strong that weapon or tool is that they've just taken out of the fire before it's actually put to use. Well, that's what it is, something of a definition. Why does it come? What's, or how does it come? Maybe it's a better way to put it. Um, so observation, verses 1 and 2, back to our text. When then Jesus was led up to the, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, tested by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
Note this. This is very important. Right on the heels of what we looked at last week at the end of chapter 3, the Spirit descends on Jesus, empowering and enabling him for ministry. That same Spirit leads him, this is God's Spirit, leads him, the Holy Spirit, leads him into the wilderness to therein be tempted by the devil. Pay attention to that. This is really significant. What is this telling us? That God, the Father, purposed, do you understand? The Father purposed to test the Son. God is behind this. He's all over this. How? How is he going to test the Son? By allowing Satan to tempt him. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. Satan's a tool. He thinks he's the main player. He's actually but an instrument. Jesus' response will bear out the result of the test. What's there? It will show forth to all seen and unseen witnesses forever and a day, still now, what's in his heart. It will show the level of his devotion to his Father and his commitment and submission to that plan to redeem a people through that testing. It will be exposed. It will be shown. All right, well, then the testing of Jesus. Let's talk about that then. The second point. There's a focal question here. Will he prove himself to be, through the course of this testing, will he prove himself or be proven, however you want to look at it, to be who he has been declared to be and enabled to be. Declared to be by the Father's voice, enabled and empowered to be by the Spirit. There are certainly echoes from the past that we see here in these opening verses in the context. Uh, Forty days, right? Forty days there in the wilderness, paralleling, tracking with Israel's 40 years of wandering in a wilderness a wilderness that they too were taken into for what the scriptures tell us to test them, to expose, to reveal, to prove what was there, to show forth what was there. Uh, That said, this is not just about the past. This is, of course, connected to the present. Let's go back to chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, what we looked at last week. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now the question is, how will Jesus respond? How will he respond to this proclamation and this empowerment? Will he show himself as one who is submitting himself to the Father's plan, this plan to save of people. Well, therein come the tests. The tests, as we see there in verses uh, 3 through 10, uh, I, I will tell you for years, it has bugged me how to read this, how to figure this out. And, and I think over the last few days, um, let, me, let me give you some clues as to how to read and interpret these tests and what's going on here. What is Satan after? What is he trying to do? Look at Jesus' response. Jesus' response is the clue to tell you what Satan's after, what he's trying to, to, how he's trying to trip him up. And Jesus also is appealing to, you'll notice, you've got footnotes at the bottom of your page, passages in Deuteronomy. Jesus showing forth, where, put it this way, where Israel fails, where Israel fails the test, Jesus 
succeeds, passes as they should have, um, and shows us some things in the process. Well, let's look at these tests, one, uh, two, and, and three. Uh, verses three through four, the first test. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan, in essence, is coming to Jesus, and he says, Oh, so you're the Son. Well, surely that means you shouldn't have to deny yourself like this. To which Jesus then responds uh, with a refusal to ease the trial. Uh, he has emptied himself. Uh, he has laid aside his glory. He is going to rest content on his Father's provision and care. All right, the second trial, the second test, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan, now having heard Jesus use Scripture in answer to his first temptation, uses Scripture himself. The devil knows the Bible. He just twists it. He takes some things here out of context, manipulates it. In essence, saying, okay, so you're the Son of God. Okay, and God's promised, by the way, to protect you. Well, go ahead. Let's see if he will. Let's see if he actually will protect you. Let's see if he'll... Let's put that to the test. To which, again, Jesus refuses this. He will not test God. God can test. It's not for us to test. Not to us to test him. That's presumptuous. That's arrogant. Jesus refuses. He says, rather, my posture will be that of humble trust and obedience. Okay, third test, verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and... Him only shall you serve. Satan now at this point drops all pretense. He's not pretending. He's not masking anything. He's not hiding anything. He is throwing his cards out on the table. He is showing now what he's after and who. You're a king. You want to be king? Fine. Have it. Take it. Take it all. It's all yours now. All you got to do is worship me. To which Jesus says, no. He refuses to take the shortcut. He knows that the path to his crown goes through a cross. And he will not back down off of his loyalty and devotion to his Father. And notice who's really in charge in here. Jesus says, leave. He's gone. Which takes us to the conclusion, the, the epilogue of all this, verse 11, which is so well worth our considering and pondering. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus is exhausted. He is physically, emotionally, spiritually spent. 
And he receives the help that he needs from heaven itself. But note this, this is not the end. It's a little bit of a misnomer. It's a little bit of false advertising. I don't know how your Bible does it. Mine there at the, the top of the text says, The Temptation of Jesus. As though it's the only one. As though now it's done. It's not. It's just beginning. It's just beginning. And it will come to a culmination in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, just on the eve of his crucifixion. And it's only just begun. Well, that takes us now, finally, to some things to consider as far as the significance of this, of all of us. Things that we need to learn. Uh, things that we need to take away. Four, at least, at least these four. Um, first, what to know. So what to know, when it comes, how to prepare, and where to look. What to know. This basic thing, essential thing. You've got to know that you've got to hold this in your heart and, and keep it in your heart. Temptation in and of itself is not a sin. To be tempted in and of itself is not a sin. How do I, how do I know that? Because Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was tempted. Temptation in and of itself is not a sin. It is, however, the occasion for sin, which therein means we must guard our hearts. Or as Martin Luther so winsomely put it, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. That's what we need to know. The second thing, when it comes, when it, the occasion for it, the setting for it, it may well come when we're low. It may well come when you're physically exhausted, emotionally fatigued. It's when so many of us click on things we shouldn't be. You're anxious, you're burdened, you're frustrated, you just want a little release, you just want a little relief. It may come right then. When you're low. It may also come, and this seems so counterintuitive, it may also come when you're high, on a high, a spiritual high. What does Jesus just come down off of? I mean, not literally a mountaintop experience, but his baptism, a declaration from his Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased and the descent and empowerment and enablement of the Holy Spirit. It's a warning to us, because it's at just those kinds of times that we can be way too relaxed, cocky, with our guard down. It can come when things are low, it can come when things are high. When things are bad, when things are good. You need to be aware of that. A third thing to consider, how to prepare how to prepare, not just how to respond. I could have put it that way, but I think it's better to put it this way. How to prepare so that you can respond. How do, what do we see Jesus of Jesus? How does he respond to every one of these temptations? He appeals to, he hearkens back to texts that he has meditated upon. Texts, in this case, from Deuteronomy 6 and 8, 
hearkening back to Israel's experience in, in the wilderness, in their own tests, in their own trials, knowing, bringing to mind what they should have learned Um, how much more so us? If the sinless Son of God needed to prepare himself, gird himself uh, for temptation and trial with the Word of God, with the Scriptures, how much more do we? It's described elsewhere in... in, uh, Paul, Paul's letter uh, to the church in Ephesus. So keep your thumb here. Uh, there in a fee, uh, Matthew, Matthew 4. Let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians uh, chapter 6. Um, the Word of God is described in a, in a rather dramatic fashion, and perhaps one that we would do well to, to, to heed. Verses 16 and 17 of Ephesians 6. You're trying to find it. It's after the Gospels, after Acts, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Ephesians. Uh, excuse, excuse me, I skipped the Corinthian letters. Well, don't pay attention to me. Look it up in the table of contents. But um, Ephesians 6, verses 16 and, and 17. Um, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Look, this is the one offensive weapon that's listed in the armory of God. And we are meant to take it up and wield it well, to read it, to study it, to discuss it, perhaps even, dare I say it, uh, memorize it. And the Lord in His grace, in the times of need, will bring it to mind by His Spirit, will bring the things that have been meditating and marinating in, in His Word, to our mind in just the way that He knows we need. So how to respond, that's rooted in how to prepare. And we see that here in Jesus' own example. What to know, when it comes, how to prepare, and lastly, this fourth thing, where to look. Now I say this, this is something implicit here in, in, in Matthew's account. It's not really coming directly out of what we're reading. Um, where to look for strength. Where to look that we might stand. Where, where to look that we might withstand. Let's talk about where not to look. In here. Into a mythical strength that lies within you. You're going to look a long time. And you're not going to find it. Nor are you going to find it by relying on the people around you. Not ultimately. Not ultimately. You, you will not find it in another person. And by the way, think about how prone we are. To our first impulse, right? Is to... Text somebody, tweet somebody, Facebook somebody, call somebody. Is that really the first impulse we ought to have? I mean, that, that, you're looking to either to ourselves or to another fallen mortal human being. You know what that's, what that's really akin to? Standing on the beach, taking a pixie stick, and driving into the sand, and holding on while the tidal wave comes. It'll serve you about that much good. You know what a pixie stick is? Am I dating myself there? <laughs> Ask your mother. She'll tell you. Um, no, not, 
not within, but to Christ. Let me go back to that text we read earlier from Hebrews 4. Just You don't even have to look it up in your Bible. Just look it up in the bulletin there. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the thing, as I said this at the beginning, Jesus withstood all temptation therein, showing himself to be truly the Son of God. And it's to him and him alone that we can and must be looking in the course of our own temptations. He is truly man. And truly God. Truly man, meaning that he can sympathize with what it's like. He understands the power, the pull of whatever it is. It's calling you like that siren song. It keeps pulling upon the strings of your, your heart. But here's the deal. Unlike your most trusted mortal human friend, he does never and will never fall into it. Which means then, he really can help you. He really has, he does, he's not broken in his understanding. His view, his, the lens through which he sees these things and hears the, the filter through which he hears these things and the knowledge that he has is not bent and twisted within. He can truly help you because he has withstood it all. He understands because he went through it all and he can help you because he withstood it all. But even more, he's fully man and also fully God. So not only does he have then the understanding and the sympathy and empathy to help, but he has the power and the ability to help, to give us the mercy, to give us the grace, the strength in our time of need, just in the measure and in the timing in which we need it. If we will, but turn to him, and whole reliance upon him. He withstood all temptation, you understand? Showing himself to truly be the Son of God. In facing and reckoning with our own temptations, he is the one we must be looking to. Let me try and illustrate this. Um, April 12th through 14th, 1981, was the launch, the first launch of the space shuttle Columbia. A lot of things were significant with this first launch. First of all, this is was the first launch, well, the first true spaceship, reusable, going up into orbit and, and, and coming back. This is, this is huge in terms of its significance. But there's also another key thing in this. And, and a lot of people don't recognize the stakes that were involved in that first launch. This is the first time that a brand new manned vehicle is being launched up into orbit that has never gone through an unmanned test flight. This is unique and dangerous. You understand? First flight. Not autopilot, not a monkey. Man crew. The whole program's on the line here. Lives are on the line here. Who is NASA going to choose to be that part of that first crew? Well, you have the pilot, Robert Crippen, naval officer, test pilot, also aerospace engineer. 
well qualified, one problem, never been in space before. Who's going to command this flight? John Young, who had the longest career of an astronaut of anyone. He commanded two flights in the Gemini program, including the very first flight of the Gemini program. He was the first man to orbit solo around the moon in Apollo 10. He drove the lunar vehicle on the surface of the moon in Apollo 16. He's also one of only three people in the history of the world to go twice to the moon. John Young, he's your man. You know why? Because in a situation, a trying situation like that, you need somebody who's been there. You, know, you need somebody who knows what you're about to encounter and can walk you through it. You see where I'm going with this? Jesus is the ultimate commander, the ultimate mentor, the ultimate friend. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. And all of our temptation, and all of our testing, and all of our trials... Now, the backdrop to all, everything that we're seeing here and everything that I've been saying here, the backdrop to this is an assumption. And the assumption goes like this, that we are embodied souls living in the midst of a spiritual battle. We are embodied souls living in the midst of a spiritual battle. Now, Christianity takes that for granted, you understand? I fear that we do, too. We lose sight of it. Life is so normal and maybe even boring. We just don't even think about the unseen and what's really going on. This is the struggle. You know, Paul alludes to this in Ephesians 6. It doesn't just allude to it. Um, the struggle, the, the, um, the wrestling that's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We lose sight of the struggle and then the stakes. In southern Mexico, you can go, and if you can find this on the map, the uh, Cueva de Villa Luz, translated loosely, the cave of the lighted house. It's a paradise, in a way, that you can travel through to get there. Uh, tropical birds, a rainforest. It's absolutely gorgeous from what I've ever read. You get to, to the cave, and it's fed by these some 20 underground springs. Um, these uh, water courses teeming all throughout, uh, filled with all these little, little fish that you can't find anywhere else. Gorgeous, fantastic rock formations and beautiful ponds there in this cave. It seems like it seems like, like, like a paradise. So, so very inviting. Here's the problem. You accept that invitation, you're dead. I'm not talking about like an Indiana Jones trap or something like that. The problem is Cueva de Villaluz. The air is filled with toxic gases. It'll kill you. Now imagine you're a tourist. And the locals tell you, yeah, I've heard, I know you've heard of this place. Don't go there. Don't go there. You'll die. But we're Americans. We're American tourists. Which means we're arrogant. 
and a little too self-assured and a bit naive. I know temptation pulls. I know it all too well, and so do you. And testing shapes. You respond one way, you give in to it, it'll destroy you. Maybe not immediately, but certainly at least incrementally. But if we respond in another way, looking to Jesus as our commander, as our mentor, as our friend, as our Lord, turning to him as we, as, and, and for the help that only he can provide, you have a completely different result. Faith that is strengthened. Assurance that is deepened. And encouragement to everyone who is watching. Jesus withstood temptation fully, completely, showing himself to be truly the Son of Man, the Son of God. Let's turn to him. Let's turn to him and our own temptations. Let me pray. Lord, when we consider this, it takes us to our knees. We fall down upon our knees and we lift up our hands. You entered into this battle right in taking the, the full front of it. Resisting the wiles of the devil. Treasuring treasuring your Father, treasuring His love, treasuring us, and triumphing. Before you died in our place, you lived in our place. Truly the champion of our souls. And all of this voluntarily, impelled only by love, leaving your eternal comforts and your rights to then enter our experience, to change and transform our experience. When we take all that to heart, our hearts are filled with awe and wonder and thanks and praise. And again, driven to our knees in worship, with hands lifted, lifted to receive, relying and entrusting on no other but you. And so we humbly ask that you would indeed help us to take this into our hearts. I turn to you, look to you, rely, lean, trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.